Park, it's the 87th Precinct podcast, and we've reached the swinging 60s in our examination of the books of Ed McBain in his 87th Precinct series. We are up to book number 11, so between 1956 and 1960s produced 10 books in this series. We hit 1960, a year in which he produces three books. Then his rate slows down a little bit after that, so... The years will start flying by <laughs> as we explore it. I am joined, as always, by Mr. Morgan Brown. Hello there. Mr. Stephen Royston. Hello. And we're going to get stuck into uh, an amazing book with an amazing title. It's more the first of the joke titles, I'd say. And I say joke in inverted commas. But before we do, before we do, we've hit a new year. And so let's have, in fact, we've hit a new decade. Mm-hmm. So let's have a little bit of our cultural connections little treat here <laughs> cultural so, co- co- connection <laughs> treat yeah yeah all right so i think this book the book we're going to look at was published on the 25th of may 1960 certainly that's when it goes in the new york times book listings as out this week so i was looking around and about that for things to do with like film and music so any guesses at what was the number one track in the uk and america Ooh. I will say it is the same in both countries. So. 1960. 1960. Pass. I don't know. Oh, that's tough. It's um, are we so pre-beat boom. Post-rock and rollers. Yeah, sort of like the, the early rock and rollers have all sort of faded off a bit. Have we got some sort of crooner, fairly rubbishy kind of teen idols kind of cropping up in between? Or well, there are, but that's not necessarily that's not who, who we're is. looking at. No, this is probably um, someone who was sort of keeping the dream alive. Right. ELO. <laughs> ELO in 1960. Well, they have a song called Keeping the Dream Alive. Oh, right. I thought, no. An early ELO song. Yeah. Junior. ELO Junior. <laughs> oh, imagine that. Well, with the, with the uh, robot overlords, they could have taken Jeff Lynn back in time. Yeah. To release an early track. This is very early in a podcast to drop the bombshell <laughs> that Jeff Lynn from ELO is controlled or working for robotic overlords. Well, there's no getting around it. There's no easy way to, 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 to break it, is there, I suppose? If anything goes wrong with this recording, we'll know who's to blame. <laughs> or if it comes back and we listen back to it, it's covered in um, strummed acoustic guitars and cello <laughs> parts. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, welcome to the 87th Precinct <laughs> Podcast. That's the overlords, if they were... <laughs> if they were to... Anyway, no, if it's not Jeff Lynne, I really I can't think know. who it would be, actually. It was the Everly Brothers oh. with Kathy's Clown. Smashing. So that was number one across the world by the looks of it oh, at this terrific. point. Number two in America at the time was Elvis Presley's Stuck On You. So mm. Elvis was in the charts loads at that point. He was mm. churning out ones that you'd never heard of. Yeah, he would have been, he'd been to his kind of movie career already yeah. by this point. And he's point. backed by the Jordanaires mm. at that point as, mm. as well. As, so he's a, it's a different bit of It's a bit of his career that's really, I don't know, I've never heard of Stuck On You by Elvis, so I can't uh. think what it would go like at all. And number two in the UK was Someone Else's Baby by Adam Faith. So oh, he's sort yeah. of the... He's, sim- he's a similar thing, isn't he? He's a sort of actor, singer, yeah, teen idol. Bit of, kind of brought up a bit in the image of rock and roll, but a bit more of a kind of traditional all-round entertainer, really. Yeah. Yeah. But I looked up, there was a couple of novelty numbers. There was no great sort of ludicrous novelty numbers. Number 10 in the, in the UK chart at this point was... My Old Man's a Dustman by Lonnie Donegan. Oh, right, okay, yep. So that had been a number one. 
it's you know, a mad world in which my old man's a dustman. <laughs> sort of novelty oh, skiffle number. Just connected yeah. with all those people who wore core blimey trousers out there. Yeah. <laughs> core blimey trousers. Core blimey trousers. This will be absolutely fascinating to our Lived in listeners a council abroad. flat, didn't he? <laughs> he did. <laughs> it's Lonnie Donegan's obviously a very, very important mm. musician in the history of, of the development of popular music, especially in the UK, because the way skiffle sort of mm. uh, made music making accessible to people mm. by removing the sort of the need for big expensive equipment and stuff but it's very strange to look back and think that at once the song my old man's a dustman was number one but it's i wonder if he was was what lonnie donegan's dad a dustman you know what i don't know I something to find out for uh, next time isn't it yeah we'll definitely do I think that would even stretch the inter the internet yeah. finding the answer to that but in America, the number 16 spot on the hit parade was the song Sink the Bismarck by <laughs> Johnny Horton. That sounds amazing. Well, it's a sort of weird country song about the sinking of the Bismarck. Oh, right. It's not a dance craze. Come on, everybody, let's sink the Bismarck. <laughs> I'd be a bit close for comfort, I think, by that point. Yeah. <laughs> but it is it's this ludicrous, mad sort of upbeat song about... The like that sort of it sounds rhythm. great. Yeah, I sold it very well there. Could you <laughs> a single word? It sounds like a hit. Unless but there was a film. Sing, 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 sing the, the Bismarck. Bismarck. <laughs> <laughs> With a steam train. <laughs> no, it's just like a. I'm talking about steam, <laughs> steam ship. <laughs> drop a steam train out of an aeroplane onto the Bismarck. Don't so do it. Perhaps that's how they sunk it. We got very daft very early. Mm. Oh well. Hoisted a coronation class engine up by five spitfires and dropped it on the Bismarck. (laughs) But it's just, it's very strange because the film Sink the Bismarck came out that year, which is, you know, is about the sinking of the Bismarck, a real historical event. But. This song wasn't in the film, but I no. think it was commissioned because they didn't think people knew about the Bismarck. So it is a song that is basically the story of Bismarck, but in sort of jaunty country pop. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. to check that out. We need a hit to raise awareness of the Bismarck before people actually... Yeah. Yeah. Well, how bizarre. And apparently it was done by the Blues Brothers in the sequence in um, Bob's Country Bunker. And it was cut out and never used in the oh. film. So there's a Blues Brothers version out there somewhere wow. as well. cool. Which I'll have to dig up. Anyway, that's music taken <laughs> care of. The Oscar-winning film in America, well, the Oscar-winning film, was Spartacus. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. And the sort of number two rated film in America that year was by someone that Evan Hunter, Ed McBain, worked with, and it was Psycho, course, which yeah. is a fantastic film. Mm. In fact, I'll tell you what, no, Spartacus was the number one grossing film. The winner of the best picture was The Apartment, which I think is a Billy Wilder uh, Movie. Rings of Egg Bell, yeah. Um, so I wonder which, what, what came out first, Psycho or um, this book? Oh, it's, well, it's Psycho a, would have been out, yeah. Well, Psycho's based on... Robert Bloch, isn't it? Robert Bloch, From yeah. a few years earlier. Not many years earlier, I don't think, but... Hmm. So in America, you've got Spartacus and Psycho, and in the UK, you've got Carry On Constable and Saturday Night, Sunday Morning, the two... The two pillars of British mm, society absolutely. there, the carry-on films, we will always get back to them, yep. and Saturday night, Sunday morning for your gritty kitchen sink reality. Actually, yeah. So you take your pick. <laughs> but also the film Strangers When We Meet was released, which is based on a book by Evan Hunter, mm-hmm. 
don't think it was a very good film. It certainly doesn't look like it was very well reviewed. But I've never seen it, so. Mm-hmm. So who were the who were the world leaders at the time? Who was the president? Um, Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Was it slightly before him? It's not Kennedy. Mm. Mm. It was before Kennedy. Are we still on Eisenhower? Or? We are. Oh, We're yes. still still old Dwight. And in the UK. Um, Macmillan. Macmillan, yeah. I've got, uh, yeah, so world events. Khrushchev would be in the Kremlin. Yeah. Uh-huh. And the Kremlin's relevant here because it was 1960 when um, Gary Powers was shot down oh, and was. captured by the Russians. They paraded him. It was a lot of show trial stuff, wasn't it? And then that, um, that film, Bridge of Spies, which oh, is yeah. about that, is very mm. good. It's worth a watch. Now, who won the FA Cup? The Football Association Cup. 1960. Oh, Steve, I was turned into some sort of pensive sure. lion. Wolverhampton Wanderers. Blackpool, I'm going to go with. Wolves beat Rovers 3 0. Ah. Well done, Steve. Uh, Wolves' golden era. I, I, I always assume it's going to be some team that isn't doing a great deal now. I was yeah. going to say Preston North End next. If, uh... <laughs> but Man City signed a 20 year old football player. Called Dennis Law. They did from Huddersfield mm-hmm. Town, and it was for a record fee of fifty-five thousand pounds, which Huddersfield used to um, um, buy floodlights for Leeds Road. Excellent true, stuff. True There's story. A very good bit of uh, football trivia there. Yeah, no. <laughs> I would leave that in your hands because I have no idea about it. But yeah, it was a record fee for a transfer of a player at the time, or the sale of a player, £55,000, which is a lot of money for yeah. 1960. It was, yeah. No, he was at the Huddersfield match a few weeks ago. Excellent being, stuff. Being, uh, you know, half-time on the pitch slot. Excellent. Well, there you go. So, that uh, ties it into the things that are happening. Called 1960 as well, in, in literature, there was the Lady Chatterley's Lover, the oh, obscenity yes, trial, course, yeah. where yeah. Penguin... I think it was, wasn't it, that we're in court to try and say it wasn't mm. it wasn't an obscene publication Indeed. so it could be released. Yeah. And so everyone would get the chance to read what is actually a really boring book. <laughs> <laughs> and it's nowhere near as bad as people think it is. No. It's all those weird things that start to happen in the 60s where one generation starts to butt up against another one with the judges saying, would you let your servants read this? <laughs> and people going, servants? <laughs> <laughs> but that doesn't impact on the world of uh, of Ed McBain's output necessarily. Not so much. Although, I'll tell you what I did find. I found a reference to certain McBain books that were on a list of books that were banned in Ireland. Oh. They were just basically, by the sound of it, they were just banning everything. So I think there was a lot of, of church influence. I'll have to dig that yeah. out and have a look in a little bit. But, yeah, there was a lot of banning of books and, wow. and McBain was suffering from some of those. Mm. Right, OK. So the book is Give the Boys a Great Big Hand. You can more or less make up a story from that title. <laughs> this is the point at which McBain starts doing tons of fun titles. I wonder whether he came up with the title first. Well, let me direct you <laughs> to the article from the Christian Science Monitor... I don't know what year it was. Oh, I'll tell you what it was. It was from 1997. I found this online. And the title of the article is How Mystery Masters Plot Their Craft. Mm -hmm. Mm. And it starts with, Ed McBain doesn't hesitate at all when asked where he starts his novels. Right away, no hedging. Boom, he has an answer. Quote, oh, it's the title. (laughs) I always start with the book's title and go from there. So that's the answer for your 
Query well, there, straight from the enough. horse's mouth. Brilliant. He's, he's not going to lie to the Christian Science Monitor, is he? So. No, definitely not. He was. Uh, he said, each word has different resonances. The title keeps me on track. With ice, for example, we're talking about icy street, diamonds, with nocturne, everything had to be at night. I base all that on the title. Right. And with a title like Give the Boys a Great Big Hand, <laughs> yeah. you, you're doing that really literally, aren't you? As what happens in the, what I'm calling the pre-credits sequence, which mm-hmm. is chapter one, is someone finds a great big hand. It is a big hand. This is true. And it's just the one. Just the one hand. <clears throat> which if you had certain copies of the book you would have known even if you hadn't worked it out from the title because they show it on the picture on the front. Yeah, mine's just got a palm print and then I don't know what that is. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll save our book cover well, analysis, yeah. analysis for later. But mine's definitely a very small hand. A tiny hand, whereas in the book it's a great big hand. It is. So it was published by Simon and Schuster as an inner sanctum mystery in 1960. It was being published in 1962 in the UK by a company called T.V. Boardman as a bloodhound mystery, which had a cartoon bloodhound as its logo. So, Morgan, I believe you found out a few bits and pieces about T.V. Boardman. I did, did have a little look at I thought TV this might Boardman. be up your yeah. alley because of some of the sort of stuff they published. Yeah, it was interesting stuff. They seemed to have, have played a great part in bringing a lot of the, the kind of the more fun side of kind of American kind of pop and pulp culture to, to the UK. Thomas Volney Boardman. That's a good name. Uh, indeed, yeah. I think um, sort of d- discovered a, a sort of appetite for, for that kind of thing during the Second World War. So definitely at that stage began um, a company to, to reprint certain US comics titles and also to make uh, UK titles based around the, the style of those. So things like Super Funnies and Mystery Comics were... I wonder if that was because a lot of that stuff was coming over with the American troops. You, you, can only, you can imagine that that would be the case. That would have created the appetite and yeah. then just have a, a legitimate way of getting them. I guess probably also beginning the kind of tradition that still carries on now. I mean, I guess me and they both would have read reprints of, of like older Marvel comics Definitely, uh, yeah. growing up, and I, I, I still do occasionally. I think Panini now publishes the Marvel reprints, so that, that kind of probably started with old uh, Thomas Volney there. Um, also printed some of the early uh, Robert E. Howard Conan books, um, The Coming of Conan and things like that, so sort of brought that kind of... Yeah. Uh, epic pulpy kind of fantasy to the to the UK as well uh, so some interesting things um, and after the war a lot more titles came out OK Comics Wags Black Hawk the Buffalo Bill comics I think were quite highly regarded alright um, um, Swift Morgan uh, I was Swift particularly Morgan. attracted to yeah. I thought that sounds sound like a good good title good nickname <laughs> um, def- definitely um, a good one to go for so yeah some really interesting stuff and all the way from from World War 2 right until um I mean, actually, the comics by this stage, I think they, they were actually winding down. I'm guessing, yeah. Other people had jumped on on the bandwagon. Maybe that first golden age of comics had had uh, sort of passed, and it was before the the second comics boom with with uh, Marvel that was just yeah. starting in the states at the time. So the comics line wound down in um, 1961, but they ca- carried on publishing the uh, the books up to 67. Ah, mm. excellent. So, so that was mm. who was the first person first people bringing the uh, 8 7 Precinct books over. Mm. And so we were getting them a couple of years later, in, in not necessarily in the right order, I don't think, or uh. possibly they were being published in sort of tranches together. 
I found a couple of contemporary reviews. I have, I've got a source in the of way of looking into the New York Times archives, yeah. so, which is great because it finds lots of stuff. This book was recommended for a summer thriller and a Christmas chiller. Mm-hmm. Um, Serves either purpose very And well. the review by Anthony Boucher in the Criminals at Large column. <laughs> Criminals at Large, wow. It says, it, If it is possible, Ed McBain's telling of the cases of the 87th Precinct seems to get even better, even richer in its small details of police work, of the private lives of detectives and suspects, of the colour of the anonymous but Manhattan-like city. Give the boys a great big hand. $2.95. Starts with a grisly discovery, see the title, in an abandoned airline bag, and goes on to a number of lively plots and subplots which make it one of the best in the in this best of current series. Makes it one of the best in this best of current series. I see what he's getting at, but it's rather clumsy, isn't it? Yeah. And it says, don't miss the reprint of another beauty, Till Death. So, it was well received by Anthony Boucher, Marvelous. who reviewed these things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And I must say... I keep saying this almost every time we do a podcast, but it's another book where he sets out the stall in a particular way and moves the series forward again. However, having said that, I reckon this is the start of there being quite a few that are really tonally like this. Mm. And it's a great period. I love the books in the 60s. Yeah. And so what do you guys think of it? Yeah, I think um, I think that chap's correct. It, it somehow does... Uh... Seem a bit more detailed. I don't know. She reads quite modern. I thought I'm rereading it again. You can't quite yeah. believe it's 1960. It does seem, yeah, as though he's pushed things on from even books that he must have written just literally months before yeah. this. I, don't I mean, know. as like, ever, there's, there's some period detail that 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 does kind of root it in its time. But I think with the overall style, definitely yeah. is is um, is pretty great. It could could fit with any kind of. Um, Police procedural of, of any era, really. It's um, it's, kind of, stuff. it's kind of got some of the classic kind of plot traits that you like, you know, like total random coincidence that kind of sets them on the right track, really, like a a long shot, and they kind of just but not too unbelievable. No, either. no, they kind of like just yeah, in the dark for the for the most, and um, them chasing one crime yeah. uh, finds another along yeah. the way. Red herrings, like strands that don't lead anywhere, a, a much more realistic kind of um, investigation of a crime rather than something that just all the, the the loose ends wrap up very neatly into a single conclusion, which is, is sort of... I think what the TV adaptation that we also watched tries to, to make happen, really, mm. rather more. They did, did seem to... Uh, obviously, I've forgotten the guy's name who was writing for, for for the TV version. Seemed to obviously think, oh, he's got all these different strands, and um, it's not very neat. Let's just let's just tidy that up for him. Yeah. <laughs> so he keeps them going in the TV right until the end, doesn't he? Whereas, oh, yeah, he gets whereas he, uh, yeah, they, mm. they just what once Which, once once you realise in this that a particular suspects actually got nothing really to do with it. It's kind of as would happen in an actual yeah. investigation, which I'm sure is the point. Yeah. No, no, yeah, excellent. It opens on a rainy March day with a description of the city as being a sort of monochromatic, unrelenting grey, and our patrolman friend Richard Gennaro, who we've seen a couple of books back, does his same trick of nipping into Max Cohen, the (laughs) tailor's shop, so he can get some free wine before coming across a bag left at a bus stop by someone who gets on a bus. Mm. And when he appears inside it, the credits roll. Dun, 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 dun. Big hand. It's 
absolutely brilliant because there's a, a real sense of horror. You can just get the straight from the off. You get that it's almost like got a horror element to this book. Mm. Certainly at the start and very much so at the end. Mm. He uses the word terror and revulsion, and it, you don't even know what's happened at this point. But you say it's just, he reeled in terror and revulsion, and I'm trying to remember why there's a reference to God not again. I can't remember what it was that he came across. Oh, I tell you what it is. I know what it is. We haven't seen Dick Gennaro since The Pusher. So mm. really early on. And he yes. was the guy who found the, oh, the, 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 the corpse. The, the, yeah, the, the hanging. Yeah. So In the basement, that's right. It's yeah. clearly playing that's, on his mind because it's mentioned a couple of times in this book. Mm. That's where it was that's going. That's the one, I yeah. couldn't remember. And he acts a bit uh, incompetently, doesn't he? But he can perhaps put that down to his... Uh, Intake of booze, put <laughs> yeah. him, making him not think quite, uh, quite as clearly as he should, which he manages to um, keep from uh, coming out, doesn't he? Just about. <laughs> he gets uh, bawled out about it by Captain Frick as well, doesn't yeah. he? It does. just, do, it's a bit unfair, really. I do, I do like when it Captain rather, Frick makes an appearance. Yeah, I can't imagine Captain Frick himself would have actually handled things any better, to be honest, no. but yeah. there we go. Good old Captain Frick. Captain Frick says, boy, there are times when I wish I was a movie star or something. It's like, yeah, what? Because you're just sat behind your desk shouting at people. Miserable sod. And then there's a few... Um, then there's the usual chapters about the uh, the lab people. Yes, and it's very detailed, this one. So oh, it's some yeah. good stuff, yeah. The police procedural stuff in this, which very often is writ large in the medical procedures and the coroner procedures, is really detailed as... Blaney has to try and it goes into so much detail it's almost yeah, a joke in itself so much detail about how you can work out stuff from from fingerprints from yeah. palm length or whatever it is and bone length and you can extract all this data but except you can't except you can't for this one yeah yeah, yeah it's quite funny that so he kind of yeah he spends pages explaining then like yeah but you can't do that for this hand <laughs> because it doesn't have any fingerprints and it doesn't have it's not a Big enough bone or whatnot. Yeah, which is great. But the other big clue, other than the hand, is the uh, the bag that it's in, isn't it? It uh, is. Like yeah, it turns, up, it turns up in a Circle Airlines giveaway bag, so, the sort of thing you used to get in uh, if you travelled first or business class. But uh, clearly, giving away to thousands of people, this airline company. Yeah. So we we hope for a bit that the uh, the bag. Might be a lead until obviously talking to um, I've forgotten his name uh, Nelson Piat, yeah, um, who uh, breaks the news that it's given away to every first class passenger, but it, it also is quite hopeful that somehow it can be turned into some kind of promotional thing for his operation. Yeah. Now that was something that was different in the TV version, wasn't it? In yeah. the TV version we watched when he went to interview the guy from the airline, he was like, "Keep us out of the papers. Yeah, we don't want any photos." Total opposite. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in fact, yeah, it's the exact opposite. Although the weird thing with the TV version was the guy was a bit he was a bit friendly towards Corella, I thought. Mm. It was a bit like there was like some weird undertone, like he was trying to convince Corella to go for a drink with him. There were some peculiar performances altogether yeah, in that episode, true. to be fair. There were some exceptionally weird performances <laughs> in, in mm. the TV version. But uh, yeah, the, the the guy in the in the actual book uh, is great Ed. he's constantly thinking of uh, how he can, can further the profile of Circle Airlines which I, I always I do quite enjoy he's very impressed with the photograph that the, the police have taken of the bag and is quite keen that it could go in the, in the newspaper yes <laughs> it's, it's, yeah he's very uh, opportunistic 
Hell, you can't buy that kind of advertising space now, can you? Very good for our operation. <laughs> it's remarkable, yeah. I love I love these sorts of characters that that McBain is creates and populates the world with. And there's a, there's a few in the book. Mm, in this book, some good good bad characters, like <laughs> the woman whose son's missing that they go around to try and follow mm. up as a lead, and she's just. Just in it for uh, the what they call the relief checks. Yeah. Well, that's what they called it on the TV episode. I don't know whether it's here. So she had to report him missing, but she doesn't really care. And she's basically getting high with someone and being quite cross about being interrupted by the police. Yeah. And then there's a bit of a nervous breakdown. Yeah. But red herring again. Mm-hmm. Or is, or is it? it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a good sequence with some... Other aspects of the police, which is the guys who run the records office, the missing persons office, <laughs> and they turn up to give Kling a bit of shtick as he turns up to look for, well, to basically try and find all the records of missing people who could be best described as male and between the ages of 18 and 34, which is a job enough in itself. Hmm. Possibly had big hands. And possibly had big hands, yes. yes. Bartoldian Remain. Yes, Bartoldi and well, this is his first name. Romeo Bartoldi is Bartoldi, and then Mike Ambrose. I think is the other one. That's right. Yeah, Uh, they've got a good line in. in, um... Are they in any other books? Yeah, they've they've, we've seen them before. They were in. Anyhow, yes. (laughs) I forgot to cross-reference this as well. But we have seen them before. We, we have. We've seen them. Uh, oh, what's the the the, uh, the one with? Um... No, it'll come back to me. Yeah, yeah. we're <laughs> letting ourselves down on our uh, yeah. <laughs> our extensive knowledge there. But yeah, he likes his his comedy pairings, doesn't mm, he? His, absolutely, yeah. His Laurel and Hardy characters, the ones that bounce off each other, and these two are a good example of that. Yeah. Not quite Monaghan and Monroe. Not quite that <laughs> sort of dismissive. Yeah, they're rather more genial, aren't they? They're um, a, a cheery pair, really, and quite fun. But they take the mickey out of Kling when he turns up. Of course. The sun god of the 87th, the blonde wonder <laughs> himself. <laughs> but by this point, Kling's pretty much used to it, so he can take it. Yeah, he, he was, a, he was a, a new, very much a new detective the first time he goes to see him, I think, isn't he? And yeah. Then, um, he really doesn't know how to take it. I think gets quite flustered. It's um, possibly the second appearance of Cotton Hawes, that one that I'm trying to think. It's one of the ones that's called uh, Killers Something. Yes, um, indeed. Where they get out, out to the outskirts of the city. And oh, with the ski guy, the guy yes. where Cy Kramer gets gunned down. That's the one. Killers Choice? Payoff. No. Killers Payoff. Killers Payoff, that's the one. That's where we've seen him before. I would... With the old guy with the shaky hands. I'd stake my reputation on it. Well, Would you? Well, there we go. <laughs> well, you'd be wrong because it's the con man. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I found it. There goes my reputation. <laughs> no reputations left round here. <laughs> Hey-ho. <coughs> anyway, but it proves the point. We have seen them before and they were similarly daft. Oh, the big dafties. But Kling really doesn't have much to do in this book after that because what he does is he goes to the missing persons bureau, finds some stuff to look up organises with Steve Carella to swap some days off and then basically just goes to bed with Claire Townsend for the entire weekend so we don't see him until the end of the book. Yeah. Once it's all over. Well, it, the weather hasn't been agreeing with him with his inability to find a hat that suits him so it's probably for the best that he stays indoors, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, well, mm. who can blame him? Mm. 
But yeah, so that's the one way of getting out, getting a character out of the way yep. is by just sending him to bed with his girlfriend for the entire weekend. Indeed. So yeah, it's pretty much just Corella and Halls, isn't it, for the rest? It is. Get, a, get a very our first early glimpse of um, Frankie Hernandez, don't we? Yes. So he's he's mentioned he's for the first time, I think. More and more, he's becoming in. In fact, there's a very good chapter with Hernandez, which is part of McBain's exploring the city via its peoples and the different cultural mix. And I've got my little tab here, and I've said Hernandez and Parker, and it's about race because Ooh, yeah. Hernandez's struggle as a Puerto Rican is he's suddenly he's become symbolic and he feels the weight of being like a symbol for all of the island and having to. You know, people see him as being representative of all of the Puerto Ricans. He's there for the cause, and he sort of accepts that, but also finds it a bit of a weight. Mm. And then you get a cop like Andy Parker, who is representative of nothing but bad manners, and he just takes the mickey out of him all the time, and does that thing that casual racists do, which is just assume that you're from somewhere. You're always from somewhere. Yeah. Like... It's a classic racist move, isn't yeah. it? You know, where you come from and you go like, what, Ballum? Yeah. Middlesbrough? You know, wherever. Hernandez is from the city, but mm. Parker's like... Not in, yeah. not in Parker's mind, he's not. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's a really interesting chapter. So that's, and that's a, so a, a fairly rare occasion where uh, Steve Carell loses a bit, a bit of his um, normally flawless self-control too. Mm. Because he but just can't be... Asked with Andy Parker's bad <laughs> bad attitude, so he uh, yeah punches him. It's clearly a very stressful case, and Parker is a prat, he to is. say the least. He is indeed. But that's after, that's quite late on, that isn't it? I think it is yeah. quite late on. It is. The older, yeah. I think the strain of the investigation not really going anywhere has got to him at that stage. Yeah, they do run into, run into a lot of uh, seeming dead ends, don't they? So. They do, and then it all kind of comes together somewhat. But add into the mix for this one the idea that one of the missing people they're trying to pursue or they discover is a missing person is a stripper mm-hmm. called Bubbles. Call me Bubbles. <laughs> who um, I think Kling only discovers because of the guys who are um, enjoying a joke at his expense in the missing uh, persons department. Yeah. The so, records, uh, rather. So we've we've been hinted at that she might be important early, early on. It turns out she's missing, which means as well that we get to introduce a load more musician characters, which <laughs> McBain loves to do, really mm. including a, a trombone player who tries to steal some drums. Uh, yeah, Hophead. He's a, uh, yeah. I think he's yeah. A, Hophead slush pump player. Yeah, it doesn't use a very <laughs> slush pump in here. I can't Outrageous. believe it. Outrageous. I don't think... I have a feeling we're never going to read the phrase slush pump in any more of these books, and I think that's sad. That is sad. It could have become a, a major catchphrase. <laughs> yeah. Compared oh. with a slush pump. Yeah. So, there is a little bit of the... I, I don't, know, don't want to say it's the 1960s character creeping in, because obviously a lot of what people think about the 1960s is spun off from 1967, you know, sort of say hmm. 1964 or 1967 is the period people really think is the 60s, hmm. in terms of how they portray it. But there is a bit of, of coolness coming into this, hmm. a bit of post-1950s austerity, maybe. And there's a chapter where they go to try and trace some clothes that they found, because some clothes are <laughs> abandoned, and they, oh, they have yeah. to go to the shop to... 
Oh, Ask the guy urban and suburban. No. Urban suburban. Urban suburban. That's the one. Yeah. That's where we all do our shopping. Urban suburban. Yeah, I don't so much like the uh, the changing room arrangement, but uh. <laughs> this is brilliant. And this is one of the ways you can make a story like this, which is quite horrible, really funny, is by having these moments because they've gone to try and find out if this guy's got any records of who bought these clothes, which he could obviously find because they've got the label in, and. When he takes him back to look at the records, the records room is also the changing room. And there's just a fella in there while he's talking about murder. Corella's talking about murder to this guy, or whores or whoever it is. Oh, it's Corella, isn't it? And this guy's just going, can I have that other pair of trousers, please? <laughs> just taking his trousers off in the background. Having a lovely time. Just like uh, conversing with Steve about how he doesn't like his trousers to be too tight. <laughs> and just has to keep breaking off and discussing the murder to <laughs> yeah, it's oh, it's great. I love that sequence. Urban suburban clothes was one of those tiny shops which are sandwiched in between two larger shops and which would be missed entirely were it not for the colourful array of offbeat clothes in the narrow window. And it is a small shop, and they, we find out that Corella gets claustrophobic because he says he almost have a, an attack of claustrophobia, which he had to control. And he goes into this shop and he squeezed past two men who were passing out cold over the off orange tint of a sports shirt <laughs> which had no buttons. I ran out of breath saying that then. I got a bit excited myself. I almost passed out. <laughs> excuse me, he said, excuse me. And he executed an off-tackle run around a group of men who were huddled at the tie rack. The ties, apparently, were made of Indian madras in colours the men were declaring to be simultaneously cool, wild and crazy. Corella felt hot, tamed and very sane. I also enjoy the, uh, the description of, um, <laughs> of uh, Jerome Gerald, the proprietor, as well. Yeah, he's in, um, the, he's in the tradition, of, isn't he, of these characters? Absolutely. Uh, a, th- a thin man with a Fu Manchu beard, wearing a tight brown suit over a yellow waistcoat and leering like a sex maniac in a nudist camp. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's an image. It sure and I'm is. very sad that we didn't get to see him in the TV adaptation. Missed opportunities. It's great. And he's trying... Very hard to not help because mm. he's got a very busy shop. Corella has to sort of try and coax him into helping by saying, it's a murder. And he's going, what's that stain on there? And it's, he's like, well, it's blood. He's like, what? Like, blood, what? Mm. what blood? Blood? He more or less remembers the person who bought it because it was a very big suit. Mm. And he's able to find the slip mm. while the man's putting on his trousers <laughs> in the background. <laughs> So I don't know how realistic that is, really, that someone would remember it. But maybe if it's bespoke clothing, maybe it was more of a thing. Mm-hmm. But that's the big comedy scene, I think, in this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good... Well, there are a couple of others as well. There's some, some good... In dealing with the person from the telephone company is a similar kind of difficulty of getting him to help out as well and trace the number or that's... give him the number of the listing of the number that's an 87th precinct trope as well isn't it more yeah. and more yeah. is, is Corella just trying to get the flipping phone company just to tell him something and he keeps accidentally referring to the, the person he's speaking to as an operator and he's like supervisor yeah. yes <laughs> there's a few more of those kind of... But we haven't mentioned is the character of Charles Tudor. Oh, yes. Charlie Tudor. He's not called Charlie. They don't call him that. I don't think he's the sort of person who'd want to be called... Charles Charlie. Tudor. Yeah. And a, bit, a bit of a weirdo, one might say. I mean, should we should we really talk about what happens at the end? There's a strange noise that's going on. I don't know. I just thought I heard a quite a strange noise. Well, maybe there was a strange noise going on. I'm not sure. Maybe it was the springs on your microphone stand. Doing... I think they were. 
something strange. Uh, I mean, do we want to talk about? I mean, the, the ending, ending of the book's quite grisly, mm. but not in a you know gunfight or mm. punch-up type way. It's more in the style of a horror mm. story. And actually, mentioning Psycho before, like we're saying, and thinking about when that came out, mm. maybe that perhaps was in the air a little bit in terms of the things that were coming out in popular literature and adaptations, because mm. Psycho was obviously a, a big adaptation by a big director. Mm. Yeah. And that would have been promoted in, in the run-up for probably a couple of years. Certainly, in the run-up to that. yeah. And so that would have perhaps had an influence, mm. I don't know. We know that Evan Hunter later worked with Hitchcock on The Birds script mm-hmm. and Marnie before they parted ways. So you've got a character who's very posh. He runs a talent agency that provides, well, strippers, basically. <laughs> he thinks he's a choreographer. He thinks he's a... Or he portrays himself as a talent yeah. agent, but actually he's just strippers going for, for jobs or models. He, he likes to envisage himself as something a lot grander than he actually is, I think. Is, Doesn't is he put on a, like an English accent or something? He says he's got a bizarre... Weird accent, doesn't he? Yeah, I think he's supposed to be a bit like he's he's putting on airs and graces, yeah, isn't yeah. he? And he's based in the 87th Precinct equivalent of Tin Pan Alley, isn't he? Mm. Or would it be the the Brill Building in the real world? Yeah, it, yeah, it sounds very much like it. The, the rooms with pianos and aspiring starlets singing. and So he's got his company in there. Absolutely. As well as his other flat that he uses for certain purposes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He does like uh, making sure that... Oh, it's really difficult to talk about now. <laughs> this is daft, this. You See, know, he, re- he reports the missing person as well, doesn't he? He does. And one thing that you could say now is that... Which isn't really explained. He's more... He is a psycho, basically. Mm. But he's a psycho more in the sense of someone who is ill. Yeah, mm. yeah. Whether it's that he's flipped because of something and all the event has made him the thing that he does has made him the way he is yeah or whether he's always been mm. a bit strange we don't know yeah but certainly nowadays if a character like that was written it'd be a lot of psychoanalysis going on about mm. them wouldn't it and reasons Definitely. for this that and the other mm. which you don't get time to do in a McBain book so you, you do get a nice grisly ending and you you get a very strange final interview with him Mm. Yeah, he, he seems to, on one level, be aware of actual reality, but on another level, completely deluded about yeah. everything. Because so he, he says something like, "Is this going to take long?" Mm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, um, probably going to take a very long time. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, um, a strange, yeah, strange ending, really. But this, as I said at the top of the show, is. One of these ones where really I think McBain's starting to get it totally right. Mm. He start he set the pattern with these sorts of stories for how the next few books are going to be. Although he does obviously get a chance to in the next book to do something interesting again that has an implication for the future of the mm-hmm. series. But books like this, I, I remember getting this and a few around the same t- around the time that I read this and thinking, oh yes, I can see that this is a series now because you've come to expect. This sort of beginning, this sort of middle, mm. this sort of end, these sorts of characters. And that doesn't make it formulaic, no. but makes it reliable and readable and you understand how it works and why it is 
the procedural series yeah. that it is. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's really settled into the idea of it as a long-term prospect, I think, by this stage, rather than just, it's not just a matter of, oh, well, we've got through those first few and people want more, so let's keep trying out a few different things. It's he's kind of settling in for the long haul, isn't he, I think? Rereading it, I couldn't remember who'd, who'd done it. I couldn't remember the characters, mm, and I was just, yeah, yeah you're kind of like, oh, is, is this the person that did it or not? I can't mm. remember. Yeah, it was, so, it was know, nice. Him, yeah. Yeah. It, stands, you know, it stands up to being reread. Well, that's what I think is so great about these books. It really is that you can just, you can go away from them, you can come back to them, you can forget, you can read loads in a go, pick up one, and yeah, so you might not retain every detail of it, but who cares? It means it's really, really enjoyable when you reread them. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, you get characters like Mrs. Livingston, who mm-hmm. is the aforementioned mother of the missing boy, who, when they're trying to take her out to, to the station because she's being, well, they find the drugs there, don't they? Mm. And she refuses to sort of get dressed. <laughs> Mrs. Livingston seized her left breast with her left hand. She aimed it like a pistol oh at Corella, <laughs> squeezed it briefly and angrily and shouted, In your eye, cop! <laughs> so, yeah. She's a character. She, she, she's she's entertaining. I also quite like uh, her her new recent uh, boyfriend Lenny, who's found kind of sort of most of the way out the window and <laughs> and over the fire escape, isn't he? When the, the when they enter the apartment, yeah, making himself look more guilty than he actually is. Yeah, although he does then accidentally confess to a number of um, <laughs> <laughs> a number of felonies. Yeah, excellent. Silly, a silly Billy. Right, so have we got any other particular points we need to make about this story? Um, no, I think we've pitched it quite well in terms of not blowing the entire plot. I know, it, For is, once. it is difficult, and you do assume that perhaps people who are listening to this might have an idea, but if you're doing a, re- a reread or you've not read all of them, we don't want to... Oh, no, it's so difficult. I'm making a face thinking about it. <laughs> really? So... Anyway, that is Give the Boys a Great Big Hand by Ed McBain from 1960. We need to come up with a rating for it. We need to fire up Kenneth. We do. We need to hope that Jeff Lynn has not plugged in and overtaken Kenneth's workings. He might have revised all the scores with the help from the overlords. The robotic overlords. Mm. So I'm going to go to Steve-O first to come up with his We've rating. got the previous scores, which, you know, I always like I to we, have we to hand. I had a record high last so, time, So I, I can pitch it correctly. Let me Because I think I mustered that we might have to go above 100 in order to. <laughs> at certain times, you know. Yeah, I mean, we were awarding it out of 100, please, Shields. You know, we, we well, didn't, we'll, know, we'll we didn't ca- know how it was going to... We'll, we'll carry gonna, on, we'll carry on. How it was going to play. I'm just going to yeah. find the scores for you by going to... W, double W, full oh, stop. Kenneth. <laughs> Hark87podcast.blogspot.com, which is a Catchy. good web, a good website, <laughs> what I made, because it has got on it the useful resource of the... Scoring graph. The, the, well, Kenneth, should you wish to revise Kenneth's scores, but it's also got the 87th Precinct book list in correct order with... Mm-hmm. As many dates as I can find. I'm going to up, I'm going to try and find publication date. It's actually quite hard to mm. find a publication date. Publication year easy, copyright date easy, publication date quite hard. Mm. So when I've found it, I'll try and add that on there as well. Smashing. 
what I'm trying to do is look it up now on this iPad I have in front of me, which is really slow and quite old <laughs> now. So it's having a little think about everything that's going on. But I always use my own uh, website as a resource because, well. you know, it's just there. But that's where you can find links to the episodes, links to the books. The list also tells you about the adaptations that there's been of these different things. So Crikey. I will... Sounds like a... It's a treasure trove. It's the place to go really for the 87th Precinct fan. Mm. Uh-huh. Right. So. And for a monthly fee. Yeah. <laughs> for a monthly fee, I'll ring you up and tell you about it. <laughs> Re, yeah, read, read the books, dear. <laughs> yeah. Personalised audio book service. Chapter one. It was raining. So, let me very quickly run through the scores previously. I'm going to pick this up and move it closer to my eyes. That's how I see it, you see. Cop, Cop Hater, 86. The Mugger, 76. The Pusher, 75. The Con Man, 83. Killer's Choice, 71. Killer's Payoff, 80. Lady Killer, 83. Killer's Wedge, 82. Till Death, 69. King's Ransom, 89. Oof. 89. So we've had the lowest to the highest for the last two books. Well, did you say you coming to me first? I'm coming to you first. You yeah. can't avoid it. Yeah, I think it's definitely... Uh, one of my favourites to date, and so without much faffing around, I think I shall say 85. 85 Police Shields from Steve-O. Morgan? Um, I, I enjoyed it very much. It's a very solid entry. Not like a, a top total favourite, but there's nothing to, to dislike about it at all. I, I, I do enjoy it. Um, I'm going to give it a very solid um, 80 Police Shields. 80 from Morgan. And that means that I have to come up with my own. I am going to join Steve-O in the 85 Club, which is where you a club we have where we meet up and award 85 Police Shields to <laughs> books that we've reviewed. I'm not allowed to enter. No, not not the way you're going. <laughs> Blackballed from the 85 Club. But I agree entirely with, with, with this. It is, it's really, really solid. It's a lot of fun. Mm. It's not got an absolute sizzle to it. That's mm. the word I was looking for. Some of them, you get to a point and it's just like, well, this is intense. Mm. It's not got the intensity, but yeah. that's sometimes the nature of the police work. That, that's it. They, they're not always going to have the same sort of atmosphere. Sometimes it's kind of really frenetic and there's loads of action and it's it's, it's sometimes it's, it's just loads of sort of edge-of-the-seat tension. Sometimes it's a bit more of just the procedure and plodding through the case, but they're all, I mean, they're all great in their own way, aren't they? Let's be honest. Because mm. um, it's, it's kind of a book where you never... Really witness the crime, dear. It's, mm. it's all about the after effects of just this kind of one or two happenings, isn't mm. it? And so they're just pursuing that. Whereas some of, yeah, some of the, the like you said, the frenetic ones, that they're in the middle of all this mm. chaos that's happening at the same time yeah, as they're trying uh, to. There um, might be a crime they're trying to prevent. Or, yeah, yeah. Um, so they yeah. So with Kenneth, he was in the background. Chuntering away, doing his calculations, cogs whirring, steam mm-hmm. coming out. He was planning the trajectory required for dropping a steam engine onto a battleship. <laughs> mm-hmm. At the same time, he can multitask. Yep. We Excellent. might need that data. We might. I'm we just saying. Well. When everything goes, you know, when the balloon goes up soon enough, we may need to be able to provide <laughs> that information, and Kenneth will help, and we can do a song about it as well. But he says that the book has gained a score of 83 police shields. Well, there we go. Well deserved. I think that sounds about right for me. Mm-hmm. Yep. Excellent. 
Right. Well, before we finish up, I would like to direct the listening audience to, if they've not read it already, an article I wrote for the website We Are Cult, who featured us as a podcast of the week a few months ago. And I did a follow-up, basically, about why we're doing this and a bit about the background of the world of McBain, the 87th Precinct, put it into context. So if you've not read it, that's on We Are Cult, which is a great website with lots of movie reviews, music reviews, book reviews, podcasts, stuff to do with comedy. So go there and have a look at that and read the article. We had a couple of comments on it so far, which is great. Mm -hmm. So there's something to look at. The next book we will be looking at is called The Heckler from 1960. (laughs) And this is going to be another interesting one. Once again, here's me saying we're settling into the series. There's going to be something new in this one that's not been in any of the past books. And it is going to have implications for the future of the series. Or certainly some entries into the series. And we'll do a little bonus episode in a minute. Where we'll no doubt smell some books again as (laughs) as usual. (laughs) Good. Which makes great listening. And you know what? I've even got a surprise to <gasps> launch onto Steve Owen Morgan. <laughs> like that. Ooh. So they, they don't know what that is. So you'll have to listen to the bonus episode to find out what happens. I'm a little bit unnerved now. Mm. And so well <laughs> So you should be, and so you will be. Until you <laughs> until then, we're gonna sign off. So this is me saying goodbye, goodbye, and they'll say goodbye from Steve O. Goodbye. And Morgan. Fairly well. See you soon. Bye. Bye.